Greetings and welcome to episode number two of Unrelated Things. If you listened to episode number one, thank you very much for coming back for more. If you haven't yet listened to episode number one and you enjoy episode number two, then go go back and check out episode number one and see if you enjoy it as well. I do not have any sponsors yet because I'm barely out there in the public. I don't have a lot of exposure yet, so... No sponsors. If I did have a sponsor, I would talk about them here. But in lieu of a sponsor, here's a quote. When nothing seems to help, I go look at a stonecutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times, without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet, at the hundred and first blow, it will split in two. And I know it was not that blow that did it, but all that had gone before. Jacob Reese. You can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. So on to the broadcast and the banter. Top pick. My top pick this week is a video series. It's not a TV series, because it is on the internet, but it is the equivalent of a half-hour program, and that program is called Tabletop. That program is on the Geek and Sundry channel on YouTube. Uh, the producers of the program include Felicia Day, who um, started the Geek and Sundry channel, Kim Eby, Sherry Bryant, and Will Wheaton. The host of the program is Will Wheaton, and the associate producer is Boyan Radakovich. On Tabletop, um, Will Wheaton hosts, and he brings in some of his friends, some of his acquaintances, people that he knows, and they come in and they play a board game, Tabletop game. Um, doesn't sound like, like anything particularly exciting, but they make it really, really fun. They choose interesting games, they explain how the games work, and then they edit down to some of the best and funniest moments um, of, of the gameplay. Um, the show in their press release kind of relate related to almost a celebrity poker type of a program. Some of the games they have done uh, include Alhambra, Munchkin, Settlers of Catan, Small World, and Ticket to Ride. And I have to say Ticket to Ride was the my top episode of season number one. Just good guests, good gameplay, and by far one of the most amazing um instances that have happened on the show at all. Spoiler! But I won't spoil it for you. So uh, watch Ticket to Ride and you will see the power of Ann Wheaton uh, exhibited on that show. 
Some of the guests that have been on Tabletop in the past include Colin Ferguson, Neil Grayston, Morgan Webb, Bill Prady, and Phil Lamar, uh, among many, many, many others. People I know, people I don't know, uh, but almost every show is enjoyable. So I highly, highly recommend you um, check out Tabletop on the Geek and Sundry channel. And here is uh, the intro from the most recent episode. When I started gaming as a teenager, years ago, most of the games I played let me imagine I was something awesome, like a dragon slayer, or a superhero, or a spaceship. I'm not talking about being a guy inside a spaceship. I've been a guy inside a spaceship. It's a little overrated. I mean an actual spaceship, which is awesome. Today on Tabletop, Grace Helbig, Hannah Hart, and Greg Benson are here to play a game where we get to imagine we are something even more awesome than being a spaceship. Today, we're going to be freaking race car drivers. Who will crash and burn and who will get the checkered flag? Let's find out in Formula Day. So that was the intro to the most recent episode of Tabletop. Uh, Tabletop is my top pick for this show. So go check out Tabletop. You can find Tabletop at tabletop.geekandsundry.com. And there's tons of videos because they, they put out their program videos. They put out outtakes. They put out extended interviews with all the participants. Lots and lots of videos there. Lots and lots of enjoyment. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. So into the shallow end of the news. In Russia, there's a problem. And it's a bear problem. The bears in Russia, especially in this particular wildlife reserve, the Kronotsky Nature Reserve, have a drug problem. They are hooked on sniffing jet fuel. So the bears in this, in this nature reserve, they're huffing the jet fuel out of old barrels until they are dizzy and woozy enough to fall over onto the ground. They will even go so far as to stalk helicopters after they've landed or after they've departed um, to try to find any fuel that's that's leaked or dripped from the helicopter um, as it's been on the ground. And they'll they'll kind of scavenge for it and sniff it. Um, so there there's really an addiction problem. So you know they need they need a good old intervention to uh, cure their problem or you know, maybe on a nature reserve, there shouldn't be old barrels of jet fuel laying around for bears to get hooked on. If you know a bear that's hooked, have an intervention for them. But, you know, be careful. There's still a bear. This happened. In Shippensburg Township, Pennsylvania, a man got trapped inside a building. Um, last week, and he entered this building, you know, at just after 12.30 in the morning, so it was, it was the, you know, middle of the night when he entered this building and got trapped inside. Um, he snuck into the building because he was drunk, and he, he took a pipe and he started uh, breaking windows 
And because he was so drunk after his vandalism spree, he couldn't find his way out of the building. He got stuck. He got disoriented. So he just took that pipe and just started banging on the walls inside the machine room that he did. He was stuck in. And, and he was yelling, let me out, let me out. Um, several of the employees eventually heard him yelling. They called the police. Police came down, arrested him. He's been charged with burglary, criminal trespassing, criminal mischief, and public intoxication. And he's actually being held in jail because he can't pay his $2,000, no, not even $2,000, $20,000 bail. So he is in jail. So, you know, if you're too drunk to be able to navigate your way through a building, you know, don't break in. Simple. Simple logic. And another thing. Uh, this is a story from the Daily Mail in the UK, and this happened in southeast Michigan. Um, police in Michigan say a woman about 60 years old went into a bank, and she told the bank employee she had a bomb in her bag, and she set this cloth bag up on the counter. She demanded the money. So they gave her the money. She took an undisclosed amount of money. She escaped in a car with a man at the wheel, so there was someone waiting in the getaway car. Um... And they still remain at large. Police have not tracked them down and not found them. So the, uh, I think a police spokesperson, you know, commented about the bag. It was a closed cloth bag, so you couldn't see into it. And of course, you know, being told it was a bomb, nobody was going to go go and open it and check it out. So the everyone evacuated the building. The Michigan State Police Bomb Squad came in and started to examine the bag. They performed an x-ray on the bag to try to determine, you know, what kind of bomb, what kind of device was inside this bag. And during that process, they discovered that that bag contained two cans of spaghetti sauce. Not one can of spaghetti sauce. Of course, one can of spaghetti sauce would not be enough to rob a bank with. But if you do have two cans of spaghetti sauce you may be able to rob a bank like this woman successfully did. Successfully so far. The robbing part worked out for her. The being caught part, to be determined. Sometimes stuff happens. An unrelated thing, uh, there's a blog out there that is pretty amusing. And this, like, exploded over the last couple days online, so you maybe have already heard of it and seen it. Um, there is a gentleman. Let me see if I... I do not I do not see his name here. But he's got a couple kids, and as kids do, they cry from time to time, on occasion, you know. So this gentleman started a blog, and this blog is called Reasons My Son Is Crying. So whenever his son is crying over over whatever the, the trigger was to uh, cause him to break into tears, this gentleman takes some pictures, and he'll pay, post one of those pictures on the blog along with a description of why his son happened to be crying at this particular time. So it, it's, a, it's a light kind of a fluff blog uh i mean it's not a serious topic but it is amusing 
Um, so it's worth definitely worth mentioning here. So I'm taking a look at it right now. Here's his son sitting and crying. And the reason why he's crying, we wouldn't let him eat candy from the floor again. Here's another picture of him crying. He's crying and he's in the largest toy store on the planet. He was crying when they put a mic on him for Good Morning America. This blog has gotten so big, there's been a lot of press about it in the last few days, and they did appear on Good Morning America. And he was crying again in the hotel room on that trip because they wouldn't let him open the hotel door and run naked through Times Square. He was crying in the airport when they were flying to New York City, and before they left home, he was crying because they would not let him drag a snow shovel into the house. So amusing, amusing uh, blog. You know, all these odd little quirky reasons that, that set off this, uh, this child into a crying fit. And if you have a child, if you've been around children, you know, for any length of time, you've probably experienced some of these crying fits yourself. So just uh, a little enjoyable blog there to check out. And see what you think. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. All right, let's get that out of there. Hold on tight. We're headed for the deep end. Into the deep end of the news, some of the more serious topics uh, in the news that I've come across that have either been interesting to me or or really kind of stirred some emotional response from me. So uh, Obama is um, set to release his budget and there are some some serious issues in his budget and you know there's people on all sides that have various issues with the budget but one of the big issues that the left has with his budget is um, a proposal to reduce uh, Social Security. And it's a proposal that's going to reduce social social security. If I can talk, I'm, I'm great with my S's, as you've known, uh, if you've listened to my podcast uh, before now. Um, so this is a perfect story for me. So the there's something called the chained CPI that, if put in place, will cut the. Um, automatic growth of Social Security to keep pace with inflation. And I can't explain it to you any better than Mr. Robert Reich can explain it and has explained it in this video clip, which I'll play the audio from in a moment. Robert Reich was the Labor Secretary under Bill Clinton, and despite that, I still think he is uh, really, really smart. Um, his viewpoints align with mine more than, I think, more than any cabinet member that Clinton ever had, or maybe any cabinet member that's been in the cabinet as long as I can remember. Um, so you can check out more um, from Robert Reich, and including this video, on robertreich.org, and Reich is spelled R-E-I-C-H. So here you go. The White House and prominent Democrats are talking about reducing future Social Security payments by using a formula for adjusting for inflation that's stingier than the current one. That formula is called the chained CPI. The idea is that when prices go up, most people substitute lower cost items. So a true calculation of the cost of living should take account of this substitution effect. 
This makes no sense for seniors because they spend 20 to 40% of their incomes on health care, and they can't substitute lower-cost alternatives. The cost of health care has been rising faster than inflation. Not even Social Security's current inflation adjustment adequately accounts for it. Social Security benefits are already meager for most recipients. The median income of Americans over 65 is less than $20,000 a year. Nearly 70% of them depend on Social Security for more than half of this. The average Social Security benefit is less than $15,000 a year. Besides, Social Security isn't in serious trouble. The Social Security Trust Fund is flush for at least two decades. If we want to ensure it's there beyond that, there's an easy fix. Just lift the ceiling on income subject to Social Security taxes, which is now $113,700. Call your member of Congress and tell them no chained CPI. Hands off Social Security. So as Mr. Reich pointed out, the Social Security system, the funding for that is is very, very stable, very, very secure. Social Security has never added any money to our debt or to our deficit because it is self-funded. And if it if it starts to struggle, if there if the funding is is challenged, and there in and there are views into the future where it may be, um, as more and more of the, the baby boomers are retiring. Um, the people that are drawing from the the fund will get larger, but currently, taxes, uh, payroll taxes, or income taxes on Social Security are capped at one hundred thirteen thousand seven hundred dollars. Which means anybody earning up to that amount pays a, a specific percentage of their their full income. Anybody earning over that amount pays no additional um, tax to Social Security. So someone pay, someone earning $113,000 a year pays exactly the same amount into the Social Security fund to someone that's earning $100 million a year. If they want to, you know, fund Social Security into the future where they think there may be some challenges, just uh, eliminate the cap. Just do this do do Social Security tax on all income. So in addition to Mr. Reich's uh, point of view, there are a lot of other people, a lot of, a lot of other organizations that share that view as well. Uh, one of those organizations is the AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO is the nation's largest coalition of unions, and it is and has been a staunch supporter of Obama. But they came out and blasted the budget proposal that Obama set up. Um, and they've urged all their supporters to sign a petition opposing the cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And from a blog post from the AFL-CIO Director of Policy, Damon Silvers, here's what he wrote. In a time of rampant income inequality and stagnant wages, a blow to retirement security is the last thing we need. It's unconscionable we're asking seniors, people with disabilities, and veterans to be squeezed of every last penny when corporations and the wealthiest 2% are not paying their fair share of taxes, despite soaring profits. The chain CPI is based on a fraudulent premise that the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is rising faster than the actual cost of living experienced by seniors, 
veterans, and millions of other vulnerable citizens living on meager incomes. In fact, because seniors in particular have limited flexibility and spend a disproportionate share of their income on health care, they tend to experience more rapid inflation than the general population. So the, the, the change CPI is a bad, bad idea. And it's, I think it's even more outrageous that it's an idea that's been proposed by Obama and not really an idea that has been pushed and forced by the Republicans or, or, or other people who, who want to cut um, our, our social programs and, and really cut back on the money spent supporting the poorest in our communities. So really, really terrible, terrible um, policy that Obama has floated to try to get Republicans to come to the table and agree to some other things that Obama wants. Um, he he's kind of you know put all his laid laid all his cards on the table in this case and said, here I'm going to give give this away to you and then I'm going to ask you for something back. Not really the best negotiating tactic in most cases. Um, so hopefully the change CPI gets cut from the budget and does not get enacted because it will hurt people that can least afford to be hurt. Let's get deeper into the conversation. Okay, let's get deeper into the deep end of the news, but let's shift gears and talk about another topic. And this other topic is really, really important, and it is methyl tertiary butyl ether. And methyl tertiary butyl ether, which also is known as MTBE, is an additive that has been used in the past in gasoline. Um, there was a court case in New Hampshire recently. Actually, just got just got a, a verdict came down yesterday on this case. Um, and so here's a story about this case that was printed uh, by or that was released by Bloomberg. MTBE, which New Hampshire banned in January 2007, is highly soluble in water and can be carried a great distance from the source of leaks. It can leak from gas stations, vehicle junkyards, underground storage tanks, um, and, and various other other ways that, that gasoline may find its way onto the ground and into the groundwater. New Hampshire estimated that 5,590 wells in the state have levels of MTBE determined to be unfit for drinking. That level is 13 parts per billion parts of water. So extremely low level because of the toxicity of MTBE in the testing that that they have done on the um, substance. In 2003, New Hampshire sued ExxonMobil, Shell Oil, Sunoco, ConocoPhillips, Irving Oil, Vital, Hess Corp, and Sitgo. So they sued all of the, all of the, you know, um, sellers of gasoline in the state that that use this additive in their gasoline. Every one of them settled before the trial began except for ExxonMobil and Sitco. Sitco subsequently settled before the trial ended. So only ExxonMobil was left in the trial fighting the damages 
yesterday, a New Hampshire jury said that ExxonMobil should pay $236 million in damages after it found the company negligent because it added MTBE to gasoline and contaminated the state's drinking water. ExxonMobil argued in New Hampshire that it was complying with federal regulations when it added MTBE to gasoline. They said it made the gasoline burn more thoroughly and reduced air pollution from vehicle emissions, and that was a requirement under the 1990 Clean Air Act. But the witnesses for New Hampshire testified that oil companies had alternatives, could have used other chemicals instead of MTBE to increase the oxygen content of the fuel, including something like ethanol, which is a common additive. They said that ExxonMobil's own research showed that MTBE would contaminate groundwater and be very costly and difficult to remove. The states estimated the cost to remove the MTBE uh, from the wells and make that water safe again or, or supply replacements for replacement safe water in those cases is over $800 million. So that... <clears throat> The $236 million ruling against Exxon is just Exxon's portion based on how much gasoline they sold during the time period of the cleanup costs. Um, ExxonMobil said that ethanol wasn't a good choice as an additive because at the time it wasn't widely available. They said it went ahead with MTBE even after a staff memo warned of its hazards because of the benefits of it. Um, in reducing air pollution, they felt outweighed the risks. Studies by the American Petroleum Institute were cited in the case, showing that mid to high levels of ingestion or inhalation of MTBE elevated the risk of brain tumors, liver cancer, blood cancer, and kidney cancer in mice and in rats. ExxonMobil argued that there had been no evidence that MTBE caused illness in humans, and I don't know... I don't know what studies there have been done on MTBE impact on humans, but the impact that that's the impacts that have been shown in studies that the American Petroleum Institute conducted um, of impact to living animals, um, I think, uh, uh, offer a pretty pretty clear indication that this stuff is harmful, and that is the information that the state would have used to set its limits for safe drinking water at 13 parts per billion. So, uh, really, really interesting verdict that came down in New Hampshire against uh, ExxonMobil over MTBE. And there have been several other um, cases of states suing for MTBE contamination um, across the country. So, uh, good to see that the state will be recovering part of the costs of cleaning up what these these big corporations have um, caused, the, the pollution that these big co corporations have caused. And kudos to the state of New Hampshire and other states who are willing to bring lawsuits against polluters, against big corporations that are breaking the law. It just makes me kind of flash back to the whole banking fiasco that um, this country has seen in you know, the last five plus years and the lack of courage of the federal government to take those big banks to trial that have broken the law. So kudos to New Hampshire and other states that have been willing to do so.
But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. That kind of stuff does drive me crazy, as does this kind of stuff. Drone wars. Um, the the countries flies, the, the military flies, the CIA flies hundreds of drones that are armed, that are firing missiles and killing people. And, you know, it's what the military does, and they do it for reasons that I won't go into now because it'll take me down a a rabbit hole that is not part of this specific story but so this specific story is about some information that is coming out or has just come out in a new book uh the book is by mike mazzetti and his new book is called the way of the knife the cia a secret army and a war at the ends of the earth and the story that I, I saw this information in was um, uh, from the Atlantic Wire, theatlanticwire.com. And this was written by Connor Simpson. So in this book, uh, Mr. Mazzetti outlines the CIA's deal that they made with Pakistan to get their, their assassination program, their drone assassination program, going in the country of Pakistan and to get the government approval for that program. There was a, uh, a, a so-called enemy of the state in Pakistan named Nek Muhammad, and he was a 27-year-old. He had organized a tribal rebellion against the government, so that was, was rebelling against the government. Um, and so the CIA director, who at the time was named George Tenet, he approached Pakistan and he said, let's make a deal. We will assassinate uh, Mr. Muhammad in exchange for access to your airspace to carry out further drone strikes. And the, the Pakistani government said, okay, we'll take that deal. And part of that deal the pakistani government said you know we can't we can't let the people know that you guys are are that we are allowing you guys to come fly fly around our country and bomb locations and kill people um they'll they'll be outraged by that so whatever bombings and and murders happen we're going to take credit for um, because they just didn't want the critics of their government um, to to think that they were under control by the U.S. And so the CIS said, sure, no problem. So they killed uh, Mr. Mohammed, and the Pakistani government took credit for that killing. And the CIA went on um, over the years, and according to the book, um, the CIA has since conducted hundreds of drone strikes in Pakistan that have killed thousands of people, Pakistanis and Arabs, militants and civilians alike. So drone strikes and, and bombings in general as, as targeted and with the most accurate weapons that we have are still fallible. Even our most accurate weapons fail at times. Um, and they are guided by humans and directed by humans, and the choices are made by humans, and humans make mistakes. Um, so drone strikes kill 
kill whoever is present. And because they're conducted from miles up and actually in reality conducted from hundreds or thousands of miles away, um, we don't have the intelligence to know who exactly is present. We don't know if children are present. We don't know if women are present. We don't know if bystanders are present in many cases. And I know the military goes to certain lengths to reduce um, those, what, what they like to call collateral damage, which is killing. Um, but they fail too often. Uh, I think that the use of drones in the vast majority of the cases where they are used is unconscionable. Um, I think killing is unconscionable, period. I understand defense um, and self-defense. I think the only reasonable opportunity to to exhibit violence um, against somebody is when they are in the act or on the verge of projecting that violence onto onto you. So, you know, in that in the case of drone, the vast majority of drone strikes, and, I, and maybe it's not the vast majority, but I, the, the majority of the targeted killing drone strikes are not during active combat. Those are are often high high priority targets that have been identified as someone that they want to assassinate and that is unconscionable. The hell is wrong with us? Indeed. What the hell is wrong with us? So, uh, a couple days ago, Margaret Thatcher passed away, former Prime Minister of Britain, um, someone who had a profound impact on politics and on the world um, when she was Prime Minister and a lasting impact from her time as Prime Minister. And as is usual, when a well-known figure passes away, uh, the media and the politicians and anybody who wants to speak up I would say not quite universally, but overwhelmingly praise the person who has just passed away. And it's understandable. Uh, no one should should see joy in someone else's death. Um, but there can be time for reflection on what that person's actions, how that person's actions impacted things. And so the, the major politicians, you know, uh, heaped some praise on Margaret Thatcher. Barack Obama led those tributes. He described Thatcher as one of the great champions of freedom and liberty and a true friend to the U.S. Former President Bill Clinton praised her achievement in becoming the first female British prime minister. He described her as a fearless leader. Quote, like so many others, I respected the conviction and self-determination she displayed throughout her remarkable life as she broke barriers, defied expectations, and led her country. And George Bush Sr. Um, chimed in saying, Margaret was, to be sure, one of the 20th century's 
fiercest advocates of freedom and free markets, a leader of rare character who carried high the banner of her convictions and whose principles in the end helped shape a better, freer world. Mikhail Gorbachev, who was in opposition to Thatcher on many occasions as the, the, the premier of Russia, said that her death was a sad thing and described her as a great politician who will remain in our memory and history. What's a bit more unusual about uh, Thatcher's death is that the, the praise was not universally or even, even necessarily overwhelmingly positive because many, many people were impacted by her policies and the direction she took the country and, and in many cases, pushed the world. Um, so from South Africa, the reaction to Thatcher's death was divided, uh, especially about her stance on the ruling African National Congress, um, which she described when she was prime minister as a typical terrorist organization and she supported the former apartheid government of South Africa. Uh, let's see. Um, Dali Tambo, son of the former ANC president, Oliver Tambo, had this to say. I don't think she ever got it that every day she opposed sanctions, more people were dying. And that the best thing for the assets she wanted to protect was democracy. Many lives were lost. It's a shame that we could never call her one of the champions of the liberation struggle. Normally, we say that when one of us goes, the ANC ancestors will meet them at the pearly gates and give them a standing ovation. I think it is quite likely that when Margaret Thatcher reaches the pearly gates, the ANC will boycott the occasion. And that was mild compared to some of the reaction to Thatcher's death, uh, particularly reaction in in the UK, where she was the prime minister and where her her impacts had the, the greatest the greatest uh, reach. Um, when she became Britain's first first female prime minister in 1979, she promised harmony, but she ended up being one of the most divisive figures in post-war politics in the UK. And there is a story which I believe is out of an Australian um, media source called Ding Dong, Margaret Thatcher's Foes Celebrate the Death of Former Prime Minister. Um, and among some of her old foes, many of them at least temporarily did lay aside their old grudges and pay public tribute to her achievements. But a lot of others didn't hesitate to express their continuing disgust and anger at her policies and her disastrous, divisive impact on Britain's industry and people. George Galloway, a, a, a well-known member of Parliament, um, led the charge with a tweet that simply said, Tramp the dirt down. That was a reference to a 1988 Elvis Costello song of the same name, which was a virulent attack on then Prime Minister that contains the lines, when they finally put you in the ground, I'll stand on your grave and tramp the dirt down. Thatcher's um, reign as Prime Minister and her policies inspired dozens and dozens of angry 
protest songs and angry songs that that uh, included her as a target of their anger. Uh, BuzzFeed actually has a post called 21 Incredibly Angry Songs about Margaret Thatcher um, that lists a lot of those uh, songs. Mr. Galloway added on Twitter, Thatcher described Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. I was there. I saw her lips move. May she burn in the hellfires. His Twitter feed quickly became an echo chamber for criticism of Thatcherite policies, which one commenter said were selling off public utilities, encouraging personal greed, and befriending murderous dictators. On Facebook, a campaign was launched to take the Wizard of Oz song, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, to number one on the charts. And that's actually, you know, happening right now. I think the story I saw most recently was the song Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead was number four on the UK music charts. Uh, The mayor of Liverpool had this to say, Um, Tories believe in division and inequality. Thatcher defined that, and Thatcherism continues today as bad or worse than her period in office. So she's had a lasting, lasting impact on the UK and on the world. And in that sense, uh, she, she did things that were powerful. Her choices were powerful. But there's a lot of people in history who made powerful choices that weren't positive, powerful choices. In the UK, in in various different areas in the UK, there were celebrations and people in the hundreds, 200, 300 people, you know, at a time came out on the streets and and celebrated her death. And I think I think that's unfortunate that people are celebrating celebrating anyone's death. I but I do think that the death of Thatcher does offer an opportunity for people to think about and discuss and and provide their opinions on her politics and her policies. I don't think this is about her as a person. I think this is about her politics and her policies. And I think those things definitely deserve the derision that they are getting. Uh, some people take that to a different level and make it a, a personal thing. She was the figurehead that that pushed these policies forward. She therefore becomes a target. But I think too often people target the messenger and make that a personal a personal vendetta as opposed to targeting what the real issue is or what are the policies and what are the the ideas that this person is espousing. Um, it does, you, you, I think most of the time, the individuals should be taken out of the equation. They should be faulted for supporting bad policies. They should be faulted for, for pushing forward agendas that are, are negative to, to, to big populations. Um, but the, the personal attacks are, are not necessary. Attack the politics, attack the policies. Let the person, you know, push the person aside. Develop policies that are better. Um, you know, build, build something outside of the system. And I know that's a difficult thing to do and a difficult way to look at things. Um, but 
it is a much more productive way to use your energy than to focus all your energy on an individual because that just that just lets the politics and lets the policies survive um so here is uh a part of part of a speech um by Margaret Thatcher and a little bit by Billy Bragg who um was politicized during the the Thatcher years much like my politics are really informed by the Reagan years who was a close ally with Thatcher um Billy Bragg's politics have been heavily influenced by the Thatcher years so here you go Today in spite of many difficulties and with so much more to be done Britain has regained her confidence and self-respect. What I would like to share with you for a few final moments is a vision of the things that matter most to me. Unemployment is a tragedy, not only for those who are out of a job, but for their families, friends, and for every person who is desperately worried, and rightly, that many who want to work can't. The plight of the unemployed will be at the forefront of our minds. I won't promise what I can't deliver, but I promise you this. We will work with unremitting energy that you may work. In Britain today, there's no room for out-of-date distinctions of class or creed. It doesn't matter who you are or who your father is or where you come from. What I'm offering can be put very simply. I offer the certainty of liberty and the chance of property ownership and more than just a chance that people should be able to own their own homes is deep at the heart of conservative philosophy what earthly use is it that families should have a millionth share in some nationalized industry which is indifferent to their needs and wishes how much more important that they should have something which they own and which can be passed on to their children I believe in such general ownership. Never mind about public ownership. In practice that gives nobody anything. But personal ownership, that rightly rewards the efforts of ordinary people. My hope for the future of all our people is that they should enjoy liberty and property. Their liberty is safe in conservative hands. That they should acquire property which brings with it security and independence is the very essence of what I'm in politics to accomplish. I passionately believe that in a free society there is much of value to be handed on from one generation to the next. And uh, so yeah, I can tell you that my great inspiration in my politics was Margaret Thatcher. Were it not for her, I probably wouldn't be a socialist. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, lift in the air, lift in the air. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, lift in the air. Yes, Thatcher writes by night, your thoughts I will comply. Your doctrines I must blind, you will hear, you will hear. Your doctrines I must blind, you will hear. Your private eyes are wide, what is ours, what is ours? Privatize away what is ours. Yeah, privatize away, and then you 
make a slay. I will take it back someday. Mark my words, mark my words. We'll take it back someday. Mark my words. Yeah, bad to write my name. Let me Margaret Thatcher and then Billy Bragg talking about Margaret Thatcher and some of the impacts that he felt and how her politics informed his. Um, so I think that, you know, up, upon the death of Margaret Thatcher, it is the right time to say condolences to the family, but then to re-examine what she stood for and what impacts she had in Britain and in the world. Let's move on. Because TV is so good. Because TV is so good, let's get into a story about TV. And um, some interesting figures came out recently. And this was an Associated Press story, which uh, I'll read the tagline for first. Associated Press, copyright 2013 by the Associated Press. All rights reserved. This material may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed. So... There you go. And here I go. So a growing number of people have stopped paying for cable and satellite TV service, and many don't even use an antenna to get free signals over the air. I am 100% ready to go there. But not everyone in my family's there yet. So I, I have not yet uh, cut the cord, as they say. Um... But the story goes on. People are now watching shows and movies on the internet, sometimes via cell phone connections. Last month, Nielsen, the, the, the company that, that tracks you know TV viewership, started labeling people in this group as zero TV households because they fall outside of the traditional definition of a TV home. There are 5 million of these residences in the U.S., and that number is up from 2 million in 2007. So it's seen growth. It's not explosive growth at this point, but it's definitely seen some steady growth um, in the last several years. 
This segment is increasingly important because the number of people signing up for traditional TV service has slowed to a standstill in the U.S. Last year, cable, satellite, and telecom providers added only 46,000 video customers. That is tiny when you compare that to the 974,000 new households that were created last year. They still have over 100 million homes that, that subscribe, which is 84.7% of all the households in the U.S., but that is down from the peak of 87.3% in early 2010. The study by Nielsen suggests that this new group may have left traditional TV for good. While three-quarters actually have a physical TV set, only 18% are interested in hooking it up through a traditional pay TV subscription. So there are cord cutters who just stop paying for TV completely and make do with online video and some and, and over-the-air video. And there are cord shavers who reduce the number of channels they have and limit the amount of TV that they actually pay for or the number of rooms that the, the pay TV is in to save money. And, and, you know, anybody out there that's got cable or satellite TV know the cost can be huge. I have a, a, a relatively basic um, subscription. And I'm at like $65 a month, but a more substantial subscription is easily over $100 a month. And there's people paying $200 a month for TV. And the most common complaint, and one that I mostly agree with, is there's nothing good on. Uh, you know, to have hundreds of channels and and have, you know, a handful at best that have good programming, good quality programming, um, is is, you know in my opinion, nonsense. Why pay for all of that poor quality or, or, or information that you're just not interested in at all? So uh, a shift is occurring. It's, it's still kind of early in the shift. It's, it, hasn't, it hasn't reached a tipping point yet, but there will be a time as more and more video is available online. And I watch most of my TV watching online um, via Netflix or via other online sources uh, for video. As, as more and more of that becomes available and becomes easier and as more people have access to that, still, still an issue where not everybody has access to good quality Wi-Fi to be able to, to download or stream um, video from the internet. But as more and more of that happens, um, fewer and fewer people will be willing to pay to subscribe to television. So I think it's a good a good shift and a good change, and I look forward to cutting the cord here at home. I think when a few more of my wife's favorite shows become easily available online, I think that will happen. Um, so a, a, a really a really good and a really interesting trend, I think. Um, I, there is, there are like two TV shows on right now that I will watch when they air. Um, and there was one that will come back again this summer. I, I usually, and it's, the season just ended for, um, The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead was a good program, is a good program. Uh, it's entertaining every week. Um, so it is one show that I will watch, you know, when it airs. Uh, the Amazing Race is usually a pretty entertaining program as well, so another program that I'll watch when it airs. And when Breaking Bad comes back on the air, I'll watch that when it airs as well.
But interestingly, both The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad were not programs that I watched from the beginning when those series originally were broadcast. Um, I, I caught up with Walking Dead partway into its first season, so I started watching those shows online um, via iTunes, most likely. And Breaking Bad I actually didn't catch up to until a couple seasons had, had been broadcast and caught up with those um, partly on Netflix and partly on iTunes. So I'm more than happy to find the sources of media online that I enjoy. And I found uh, through using Netflix that I really enjoy watching a, a program series um, or, you know, through, at, at my own pace. If I want to watch three shows in a row, then then that's great. I enjoy being able to set the pace and being able to decide when to watch the next episode. I don't enjoy um, when I find a show that I like watching an episode and then having to wait for the broadcasters to decide when I should be able to see the next episode was a a challenge for me uh, when watching Eureka because Eureka again uh, is not a program that I that I caught on to early in its in its um, lifetime. It's one that was probably had three seasons in before I started to watch it. And I started to watch it on Netflix and watched it right through, caught up with it at some point in season four, and then had to wait every week or sometimes wait months in uh, between the breaks and seasons in, in the airing of seasons um, to be able to see the next episode and and found that frustrating, which is really interesting. It was never something that I found really frustrating in the past, but there haven't been an enormous number of programs that were must-see programs for me. Um, so I think that the the style of watching TV is has absolutely shifted within me to be one of, I want to watch it when I want to watch it, and I don't want to have someone else dictate when is the right time for me to be able to watch that program. So I I am comfortable waiting for shows to be off the air before I start to get involved with them and start to watch them. And I have, have like seasons worth of programming ready and waiting for me to watch at my own pace. Because TV is so good. into our Eureka Minute. Uh, every program, I think, at least for the foreseeable future, I will probably talk about Eureka in some way, shape, or form. I already just talked about Eureka before I get into the Eureka Minute. Uh, it, definitely my favorite, favorite recent program on TV, and perhaps my favorite TV program of all time. But for the Eureka Minute this week, um, it is actually just a little bit over... 10 years to the day um, when Eureka was pitched to sci-fi and to the, the people who, who were deciding what programs they were going to invest in and produce. And so uh, Andrew Cosby and Jamie Paglia, who were the creators of Eureka, on April 4, 2003, brought this concept for this program to the executives. And here's a little bit. The document's available online. It's a two-page, 
you know, kind of pitch for the show. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it right here. The concept, U.S. Marshal Jack Carter is that rare breed of law officer, a big city man of action whose greatest strength is his unique ability to solve puzzles. Whether he's tracking kidnappers or busting drug cartels, he notices the things that others don't, and that has made him the best in his field. When he is tapped for a top-secret assignment in Washington, he thinks it's the dream job he's been waiting for. Unfortunately, his destination is not the nation's capital, but Eureka, Washington, a government secret so closely guarded you won't find it on any maps. Eureka is a small town oasis populated by America's greatest minds in science and technology, the ultimate government think tank. Completely out of his element, Carter is tossed into this incubator of eccentric geniuses whose creations threaten to destroy the world as often as save it. From genetic engineering gone awry to renegade laboratory experiments, each day presents new and bizarre challenges for Carter to contend with, not the least of which are the quirky personalities of the inhabitants themselves. Its northern exposure meets the X-Files as our big city marshal summons all of his resources to keep Eureka's brilliant but fallible small-town folk from being their own powerful enemy. Uh, Look, I skipped a line. From being their own undoing and ours as well. In the process, he makes some amazing friends and one powerful enemy. And in spite of himself, Carter eventually grows to regard Eureka's odd cast of characters, not just as citizens in need of protecting, but as cherished members of the ultimate dysfunctional family. So that is the opening of the pitch that Andrew Cosby and Jamie Paglia brought in to the executives to launch the TV show Eureka. And I am thrilled that they made a good, strong pitch and that those uh, executives picked up and provided the funding to produce Eureka, um, the best show that has been recently on television. I'm going to move on now. Okay, so let's move on now out of the TV zone. The Cult of Mac website has a story on Apple and the media, and it is called Apple Widens Its Lead Against Samsung in the U.S. as Top Smartphone Maker. And here's what it has to say. While many in the media have been eager to announce the demise of Apple and the iPhone, the facts tell a more nuanced story. In the U.S., Apple has continued to widen its lead against Samsung. So a company called Comscore just released a report on the state of the U.S. smartphone market and which companies uh, have what percentage of smartphones out in the U.S. market. And both Samsung and Apple increased their market share. Samsung's growth was 1% above the previous time period. And Apple grew four times more during that time period with a four, just under a 4% increase in their market share. Apple's current U.S. market share stands at 38.9%, according to the report, while Samsung's market share is 21.3%. The other three top uh, manufacturers are HTC, Motorola, and LG, all under double digits. 
in penetration of smartphone use in the United States. So Apple is the country's top smartphone manufacturer, has the most devices in the market. Despite that, as far as operating systems go, Apple Apple's operating system is iOS, and most other manufacturers use Android as their operating system. And the Android operating system is beating iOS in terms of the platform market share. Um, but during the time period, in the last quarter, Android's usage dropped 2%, and the iOS usage increased from 35% to 38.9%. So... Apple's still showing gains in the usage of their platform and gains in the usage of their devices. So when you hear the the media out there talking about the gloom and doom of Apple as Apple is struggling in this way or in that way, know that there are lots of figures out there that show that Apple is strong and continuing to grow despite stronger competition than they've seen in previous years. So on to the next story about Apple. There was an interesting rumor out there, and I say interesting uh, and, and emphasize interesting because I don't have a lot of faith in this particular rumor, um, but a website called Pad Gadget has a story by someone named Lori, L-O-R-Y, and it has some information on the rumored television set that Apple is working on. And their story goes to say, in a research note sent out today, Brian White claimed that Apple is ready to release the rumored television set and it could launch sometime later this year as a 60-inch model with the possibility of a 55 or 50-inch model alongside it. Additionally, White claims that Apple Apple will offer the iRing to act as a motion control for the television set. Quote, we believe Apple will release a miniature device called iRing that will be placed on a user's finger and act as a navigation pointer for iTV, enhancing the motion detection experience and negating some of the functionality found in a remote. It's a really, really interesting idea. It's a really, really interesting rumor. I can definitely see the opportunity for some interesting application of a ring-like device that um, the user wear as they interact with the TV. And I, I think as a as kind of a location device, a ring is not a, a bad option. Um, I think size-wise, it's something that could get lost very, very easily. Um, and functionality would be potentially limited by its small size. Um, but definitely the way that the Wii Mote remote um, interacts with the Wii um, and, and has uh, detection for motion and detection for location, I think an iRing type device could offer some really, really interesting ways to interact with an Apple TV. But as I said, this particular rumor is pretty far out there. Uh, I, I would be interested in see it, seeing it happen and seeing it in action, but it is not something that I feel is a very likely release 
by Apple. Though I do think at some point in the future, but with no timetable in my mind, Apple will release television sets that have a lot of built-in functionality and a lot of interactive functionality to interact with other Apple devices. Um, and look forward to seeing Apple enter that market. So another story in the Apple News that's going on in the last week or so, uh, there's several retailers out there that are offering big discounts on iPads. It's really unusual. Most discounts on iPads that have been uh, in the marketplace so far have either been on old models or have been really, really small discounts just so these retailers can get to the top of the list of a least expensive device. Um, but Best Buy has begun offering very heavy discounts on various iPad 3 models this week, which is a current model. Um, it's not the, the Retina model, but it is a current model of iPad. Deals at Best Buy offer up to 30% off regular retail prices for the iPad. And on Wednesday as well, Walmart and Mac Mall also initiated clearance sales, and they've reduced their third-generation iPad and current iPad mini prices about 30% across the board. And when retailers start to take big discounts on existing and current products, it really increases the likelihood of an update coming soon. Um, so... The writer goes on to say they wouldn't be at all surprised if new iPad released were new iPads were released as early as this month. Uh, I don't know if we'll see new iPads released in April, but the rumors are starting to heat up, and this evidence of a, a iPad update sooner as opposed to later is is fairly strong. Uh, in addition to that, there's been some rumors about updates to Apple's Notebook line as some new processors become available, and updates to the Mac Pro desktop computer, which hasn't seen updates in a couple of years. Um, but the processors for the Mac Pro, the, the newest processor from Intel, won't be widely available for a few months. Um, but there are definitely some things in the works, as there always are things in the works. But we're getting closer to release times, most likely for some updated products from Apple. And as Apple is working hard to update and release new products, J.C. Penney is releasing their CEO. And their CEO, uh, until just a couple days ago, was Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson previously was Apple's uh, senior vice president of retail and had and, and was a big force in shaping of Apple's retail experience and the enormous success that Apple has had in the retail field. Apple would not be the company it is today if they had not begun to open their own retail stores and if they had not been so enormously successful with their retail stores. Apple is the number one retailer in sales per square foot of, of space in the United States. So dollars per square foot, they are number one in the U.S. And that was in part due to Ron Johnson's work at Apple as senior vice president of retail. Of course, no one can do it on their own. And there's a story by Om Malik. That's O-M. 
M-A-L-I-K, and you can read his uh, stories and stor other stories on um, GigaOM, uh, which is a great site to get tech news from. So Ohm writes, uh, Johnson's firing from JCPenney is a good reminder that just because an executive is part of a winning team doesn't mean an individual was the sole reason that team kept winning. Instead, it is the whole team effort that keeps the winning streak intact. And more importantly, there is this thing called luck and timing. There is luck and timing, but a skilled team will will stack the deck or slant things in such a way that what others might might consider luck were um, not necessarily planned, but were opportunities that came up that they were prepared to take advantage of. So Ohm goes on, Johnson was awesome as Apple's retail chief because he had a great product, great brand, great supply chain, and most importantly, a great think tank that wanted to change retail. He failed at JCPenney because he had none of those things. He was trying to rework a brand change, he rework a brand and change the culture at a company which had little or no time for his way of doing things. So I think I think that books and papers will be written on Ron Johnson's experience trying to change things and trying to turn around JCPenney because none of the things he put in place were successful in that environment or were given enough time to become successful in that environment. Uh, the changes that were made in many cases um, led to decreases in sales and decreases in profitability at JCPenney. And 17 months of time is, is a lot of time to get some initial things going, but if those initial things don't pan out, it is not enough time to pivot and, and get something else going. And and there were some strong moves into into a new strategy at JCPenney, but Ron Johnson was let go before any of those things could be tested in the marketplace to see if they would be successful ideas. Um, Apple does have an opening uh, senior vice president of retail opening right now after they let uh, Mr. Browett go a while back. I don't believe he has been, I, I could be wrong, maybe someone has been promoted into that position, but I think they do have some space up at the top of their retail uh, segment uh, if Mr. Johnson might entertain returning. I don't know if that's something he would do. Um, I think he, he was an integral part of the team that was enormously successful. I think the Apple team will continue to be very successful in retail, with or without Mr. Johnson's return. But interesting opportunity that Mr. Johnson um, may be back, or at least people are talking that there's an opportunity for him to return to Apple and to, to return to that success that he saw at Apple. So we will see if that uh, comes to fruition in the future. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to another topic. And this topic is podcasting. So my podcast pick for the week is Framerate. Framerate is a podcast that's hosted by Tom Merritt and Brian Brushwood. They discuss films, TV, 
cord cutting and anything else of related interest in the media and entertainment field. So back to the cord cutting, which I was talking about in the earlier story. If you're interested in that type of thing and interested in entertainment and media online and otherwise, Framerate is a really, really great program to listen to or to watch. Um, Framerate is part of the Twit TV network and it's one of the many programs on Twit. Uh, they record live every Monday at 3.30. One of their, or their recent program, program number 119, included stories on Aereo, which is a really, really interesting story in the news right now because Fox News has indicated they could be willing to stop public broadcasting in order to not be rebroadcast by Aereo. Aereo, the way Aereo works is you subscribe to Aereo. Aereo has thousands and one day perhaps millions of micro antennas. Each of the antennas picks up the broadcast programming and then distributes it to you because that's your antenna, but it distributes to you over the internet. So you can watch broadcast television over the internet, which is a really, really interesting function. It's, it's already survived some legal challenges. Um, but so now Fox is just saying, okay, if they're going to show our content in this way, then we're going to stop making our content publicly available. That's an interesting viewpoint and an interesting argument to take. I'm not sure if it's something that would be successful for Fox. I think that Fox is successful because it reaches so many people by broadcasting its, its um, programming. So that's one story from, from uh, a recent um, frame rate program. Uh, the program also included um, a story on Hulu seeking buyers. They're trying to sell out to someone. Um, Disney killing the LucasArts uh, game studios. RDO launching its video service. Xbox for TV and more stories. So Tom and Brian have some great discussions on all things entertainment and television and media, and also about what they're watching, what programming they're watching, um, how they're watching it. Uh, really, really great, great program if you're interested in the entertainment um, topics at all. And here's a little mashup I did of a previous program, not a really recent program, but a program from maybe a month or so ago. It's Frame Rate! Welcome to episode 116 of Frame Rate, the show for cord cutters. I'm Tom Mary. Howdy, folks. I'm Brian Brushwood. Dude, uh, uh, what was the what was the shot for shot remake of Star Wars that we saw? The, t- the completely fan source thing, where every person, oh, right. yeah, where they just ask people to do little snippets of it. I I, I, forget, I can't remember what that was called now either. But uh, great example of somebody doing unlicensed parody. <laughs> yes, I see what you did there. Hey, man, <laughs> we're referring to last week's big long fight about School of Thrones, which you should go watch that episode. But that's not in fact the big story. This not- is the big story.
This just in, the big story. Cablevision came came to your aid fighting against bundles. Now Verizon seems to be wanting to do the same thing. The thing to keep in mind here is if they're successful with this with the small and medium people, eventually that could lead to some sort of unbundling situation. But, but think about this. This is more Zadiva than Aereo. How about that? You like that? You like that little uh, throwback? Let's let's talk about another piece. Stop everything. It's another big story. Veronica Mars. Well, let's go back to uh, to Serenity. This is nothing but pure win. It's like, sure, you know, I'm not going to say it's a bad thing. It's the equivalent of having your internet be uh, your new best friend, which can be a good thing or it can be a very scary bad thing. You have the most hilarious drawing in your head for, like, something with a crazy Pope hat on a Frisbee. People love it. They miss it. For some people... This is their live sports, right? It's like, uh, you know, some people are just Netflix people. Some people are box people. I like to go and to get my McDonald's and grab me a movie for $1 per night. I mean, th those people shut the hell up when you have an Arab Spring type of moment. Tube tops. What's in film, film? That's my brand. <laughs> I hope you'll be quite satisfied with it, Brian. One week delay. Yeah. Now it's time for feedback with Brian and Tom on Flame Yeah. Then what's the really small thing? Go ahead. I'm ready. Let's go ahead and start. All right. Uh, yeah, that, that's a weird PSA. So those were some bits and clips from a recent Frame Rate podcast. So check out Frame Rate. Uh, Frame Rate is on the Twit networks. You can check that out at twit.tv. So on to the crowdsource segment. Uh, crowdfunding is a thing, and it's an interesting thing um, to me. Um, seeing the fans of of products and the fans of entertainment and programming funding that entertainment and programming. So there was a milestone that happened recently. A company called In Exile uh, has a, a game called Torment. It's a single-player role-playing game, and their latest um, endeavor is Torment Tides of Numenera, and that has made Kickstarter history by becoming the most funded Kickstarter game ever. It initially set its goal at $900,000, but gamers were so impressed with the ideas for this particular game that 74,405 backers pledged $4,188,927 to support the project. As most kickstart projects go, um, the initial goal of $900,000 is was set and certain things would happen at that goal. But then they put together a chart and they said, if we reach this level, then we'll add something new. And they said, if we reach 1.2 million, we'll add gender options to let you select different genders for your characters. If we reach $2 million, we'll add new areas, music, deeper storylines, and more. 
So the backers built this up to the level where they achieved 17 additional goals up above the base level goals um, for the project. So really, really interesting story about um, the most funded Kickstarter game ever. And I say ever, but that means to date because someone is going to come along with another idea for another game and beat that $4.2 million mark. And finally, last story for this episode. Really um, a different story about how your internet provider might be manipulating what you see online. So this is a story that Nate Anderson wrote um, on Ars Technica. So you can see this at ArsTechnica.com. The title is How a Banner Ad for H&R Block Appeared on Apple.com without Apple's okay. So a couple different people noticed some unusual ads showing up when they were surfing the web on networks that they didn't usually surf the web on. Um, So common websites like Apple, Walmart, Target, and even Bing and eBay were displaying unusual ads. So they started doing some investigations and determined that the internet provider was involved in adding ads onto web pages that didn't belong there or weren't originated there as those pages were delivered from the source to the recipient. Um, Both of these two individuals who discovered this, both of these homes subscribed to internet access from CMA Communications, which is a rural TV internet and phone provider in Texas and Louisiana. Um, So after the investigations of these ads that they noticed were out of place, they found that appended to the end of the HTML file um, for these websites was a single line of code which called to root66.com, and that is spelled r66t.com, and it called up a JavaScript file from that site. The single line of code read and appeared to be the source of the issue, and it turned out that the Route 66 code didn't just add banner ads to sites that had none. It even overrode its own ads onto high-profile sites like Huffington Post, which had plenty of ads of their own. So even some like Huffington Post sites and other high-profile sites would have ads which appeared to be embedded in the site, which most people would presume were put there by Huffington Post or by the, the source of the particular website. But those were added in transit from the source to the destination. So this, uh, it's really, really a odd behavior. Um, and one of the people who, who discovered this um, said, wow, this is really wrong and crazy. These companies can feel free to operate as a man in the middle and... That allows them to inject code of their own choosing into the web page requests that were requested by the user. Um, you know, throwing up some extra ads online isn't necessarily disruptive, but if a company feels free to manipulate that website by adding ads that didn't originate there onto the website, what would prevent a company from using the same system to add information, to add stories, to add images, to otherwise manipulate the websites between their origin and their destination? 
So really, really good read, a lot of detail in the story, so I highly recommend you go and check out this story on ArsTechnica.com. This was published April 7th by Nate Anderson. So go and check that out. So that brings us to the end of Unrelated Things episode number two. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back again for more. If you did enjoy it, or if you didn't, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can find out more, find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. It's Unrelated Things. I think you just nailed it.